You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We tend to correlate action with outcomes, and I'm going to posit that we actually control outcome in most cases in business and stock market investment far less than we realize. We like to believe we do. And the belief that I am the one who can control the outcome with my action makes us take more action than is necessary. The Her Money Podcast is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows that wealth isn't just about money. It's about everything money enables you to do. So how do you build wealth? Join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a new show called Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. We are recording this episode on the heels of a week in the stock market that has stumped even the most seasoned of investors. We've seen more dips and rallies that I can count. And the S&P 500 is headed for its worst month since March 2020, when we saw that sudden COVID-induced dip. And the NASDAQ is on its pace for its worst month since October of 2008. Experts who've been looking to historical data to explain some of these movements are quite frankly scratching their heads because there is a lot going on right now higher interest rates, inflation, supply chain issues, Omicron, just to name a few. And if you're worried, I promise that what you're feeling is normal. When we wake up and we look at our portfolio and we see that we are losing precious hard-earned money, we want to put a stop to it. We want to take action. But taking action during volatile times like these is rarely, if ever, a smart move. And I know it's counterintuitive, but statistically, what we know is that investors who stay the course do better over time than those who try to time the markets, those who sell when things get rocky and try to buy in again when things are looking up. You've heard me say it before, timing the markets, trying to time the markets, always turns out to be a mistake. And sometimes when we feel that urge to take action, it's actually inaction that's our best friend. And perhaps that's more true about the markets than anything else. We have to figure out a way to stay disciplined during these periods of vulnerability. But today, you do not have to take just my word for it. Today, I'm introducing you to Ginny Opal, who is author of In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results. In her book, she says, far too many of us listen to the voice in our heads that tempts us to a default action path, not just with investments, but with everything, because our brains are wired for action. Our brains want to do something, but sometimes what we need most is reflection. Ginny interviewed more than 30 successful global professionals who shared their insights on the benefits of reflective thinking and what she calls strategic inaction, a more efficient way of achieving more by doing less. Ginny, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jean, and the warm intro. Well, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for being here 
right now. In addition to writing this book, I know you've got decades of experience working with Fortune 500 companies, plus a degree from Harvard Business School, and that to write this book, you did years of research, yes, but you were also pulling from what you'd seen during a very long and successful career. How'd you get to this hypothesis that in action was so effective? How did you know that you were onto something? That's a great question to get started with. Like you said, I have a 20 plus year corporate background and I've been the technologist who would come into companies and drive action where people were perhaps intimidated with technology. I'd be the one, you know, we've got to do something. The story I started telling myself and believing is I'm successful because I'm action oriented. And that's a nice story to tell because I could point to things I did. During the pandemic back in 2020, I found myself without a conventional job and conventional structured life and work to do. I don't like being in those phases. I don't like having not enough to do. And so I was getting frustrated and I was reflecting back to my own life. And I realized as much as I've had a few pivots in my career, and I would normally tie them to action I took, But I realized before then, there were periods of what I would have called downtime. I wasn't doing enough. And I hated those periods. I almost deny them. Like, I don't want to talk about it. So the book really started with a question, what really drives major progress? Not incremental, but significant leaps forward. Is it really the bold actions or is it the thoughtful pauses that inevitably come before them? So it was a hypothesis, like you said. Then I wanted to check with others from different professions, sports, investment management, and the result is the book. So now I think of it as a strategy rather than something you have to deal with, those moments of pause where creative ideas come forth. I want to separate something that you just said. I mean, you talked about these periods of inaction being important pauses and separated the kind of action that we do to just get ourselves going from these larger actions. Often when we talk about building resilience, and I feel like I've been talking about building resilience a lot during the pandemic, I hear myself saying, just do something, just do something. Because when you do something, you're the ball rolling down the hill and it's a lot easier to switch up from there. And what you're saying is don't do something. So how do we know when we're in a do something moment and we're not? Right. You mentioned the stock market now, which is a moment of high pressure. Very often, our instinct to do something, just do something, comes from a situation where there is either an expectation from others or expectation from ourselves with a desire to control the situation. So there is pressure. There is ambition. You want to make money or what have you. And there is pressure that if you don't do something, you're going to miss out. A lot of people ask me, how do you know whether it is pressure you're feeling, which is of a good kind of pressure? Because some people respond very well to pressure. What I say is you've got to learn your own signals. When are you feeling pressure to the point of panic acting or acting for the sake of it versus 
you can handle the pressure and now your action is coming from a place of knowing this is the right action. And you may find if you have confidence and you understand your signals, you'll tell yourself, this is not the time to do anything. Maybe this is the time to go for a walk (laughs) just to take that pressure off. How do you know your signals? How do you recognize your own signals? Is it a feeling in your stomach? Is it a rapid pulse? Is it your breathing? I know you've been a practitioner of Vedic and Buddhist meditation and breath work for a very, very long time now, and that this is one way to quiet the mind and focus our intentions. But you know, for those of us who can't even touch our toes, how do we recognize these signals in ourselves and know how to react to them? One thing I will say is everybody's signal is unique and it's worth spending the time to find out what your signal is and whether you have a meditation practice or not doesn't matter. I'll give you the story of a Dutch entrepreneur that I interviewed who shared with me the story of how he had a different story about leveraging inaction to lead major client deals. But he also described in meetings, which sometimes can get confrontation, and sometimes a good confrontation is a good thing to have good friction, and there's bad friction in a meeting with clients. And he says, when I'm having a conversation where there is some tension, but is good tension versus tension that's bad, this is becoming a conflict. The way he describes is, my body starts feeling constricted. This is his language. And you'll find some other language to describe it. It doesn't... the accuracy of it, I think, is less important than you know it. He also has an interesting way of describing. He says, if I'm in a meeting that's going well, I feel like we are at a round table and we are all equals. Whereas when there's tension, I'm in the middle and I'm surrounded by people as if I'm in the eye of the hurricane. Mm. His metaphor is unique to him. And he, by the way, has, he told me, I don't know what meditation is. I've never tried. I have no idea what it is. So it doesn't matter whether you meditate or not. The simplest thing is to think to the last time you got tense and you did something, took action, which you lived to regret. What were you feeling? That is such good advice. What is your signal? What is your signal that you're feeling tense, that you're at that point of stress? Right. I have degrees of signal. I almost feel like the blood is rushing a little faster (laughs) and I'm actually a calm person. So I guess this is a clear signal. I will sometimes feel a buzzing in my head. And lately I'm noticing, again, these signals may change with time. My jaw gets tight. And that to me is the ultimate. Once I get there, I have got to give myself a break. (laughs) I've got to walk away with whatever I'm dealing with. Yeah, I'm a TMJ person too. And actually have gone through periods of acupuncture to help me deal with it. That's a very good signal to pay attention to. When we're talking specifically about stocks and specifically about investment management, you interviewed a number of investors in the book who have been successful over the long term, no matter what the markets are doing. So what do they do to get past doubt and conflict? One of the investors I interviewed is, he's an MD at JP Morgan, and he makes technology recommendations. And he's one of a handful across the world who deals with the size and scale of investment recommendations. Traders will make buy or sell decisions based on his recommendations. His choices are, and and he deals with technology where there is a new unicorn every five seconds that's going public apparently. 
he described to me his name is Bambani, and he said, I can either spread the number of companies. Action for him is adding more companies into the portfolio, into the mix, which gives traders more choices, which is generally considered a good thing. But if he adds too many companies to his plate, he can't do justice to understanding their depth. So that is a difference between action and inaction. Inaction would be to stay with the portfolio of companies he's studied and done justice to. Action would be add more because you'll at least spread your bets. I asked him, how do you get over? And he's been doing this for 20 plus years and he's very successful. Ironically, he said, my goals are not about how much money I'll make for myself and the firm, even though he has made a lot of money. He said, my goal objective is how well do I know this company? Am I a good partner to them? I've never heard an analyst or, or you know, somebody who's in the business of buying and selling stocks describe themselves as a partner to the company. So his objectives, and he said, I'm a slave to my objectives. That was literally the language he used, that I'm not going to compromise on my principles and objectives, no matter the pressure. So it's good to have a set of principles that guide you and commit to them, come what may. And then you will find yourself to be much more successful over the longer term than if you were chasing the next company. You talk a lot in the book about how we all have this action bias. Do you see a difference in women versus men? I mean, I feel like I have a yes bias. I feel like I too often end up in action because I say yes too often to other people. And I need to have some additional filters. But are, are there differences? Are there gender differences in how we approach action and inaction? For the most part, I did not find any evidence. I talk about action bias as a behavioral tendency. It's not a mental illness or a disorder. It's just the way we are. Oh, thank you and, for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so nothing, there's no problem. It's a tendency for us, based on our human wiring, to take action and associate action with results. So there's a psychological correlation and causality that because I did this, which is why I got that result, which means I should do this to get that result. There is no difference in gender, age, nationality that I found. I'm a practicing meditator and people who know me tell me I'm very calm and assured, but I am very susceptible. It's the susceptibility that I'm talking about. We all are at the mercy of our tendency to take action. Now the kind, the areas where we have more action bias may vary between genders or groups of people. I interviewed a woman and she said, you know, I seem to be in control of my own action bias and tendency in my profession, but when it comes to my relationship with my family, I seem to lose it. And that's normal too. You've got it covered in this area of life, but this in other area of life, you get triggered. <laughs> Like something yeah. happens and you don't know what to do. I think that's so true. And I'm thinking about, you know, when we send our kids off to school, right? And we want them to rein it in when they're in school. And then they come home and they lose it because they've been holding it in all day, right? And so in that context, it's not such a, I mean, yes, it would be nice if everybody could hold it together all of the time. But in that way, 
I often thought it was like a great thing that my kids could keep it together at school, even if they lost it with me when they got home for a little bit. Right. Yep. So they are behaving exactly how the rest of us behave. So one is to, well, to begin with, forgive yourself. Again, like I said, this is not an affliction or a problem. But like any other behavioral tendency, once you have awareness, and if you're able to pinpoint that when it comes to saying yes to people, I default to yes, right? That's what you're doing. Your default behavior is to say yes. There was a job, a role I had some years ago where I was uh, exposed to a lot of senior leadership. And throughout my career, I have been working with senior leadership, but something about this environment was a lot for me to deal with. For the first time, I became aware that I am a woman surrounded not only by men, but very tall men. Like literally, it was physically, it was a very... (laughs) I'm just laughing because I am surrounded by tall people at Hermione, and they're not men. They're women. They're just all tall. I have an incredibly tall team, so that's why I'm laughing. And I'm not short. I'm 5'5", which is average, I would say. But it was interesting for me, and Jean, this behavior was very organic. I couldn't say I was strategic about it. In meetings, when the conversation got very intense and I am being practically told what to do, I found myself saying, I will think about it and get back to you. So much so that I realized I was doing this only because the CEO of that company said, every time Ginny doesn't want to agree, she says, I'll think about it. I spoke to him afterwards and said, you know, when I say I'll think about it, I mean it. That is exactly what I mean. And I will think about it and I will bring closure to the topic and I would. And of course, you know, we developed a fantastic relationship. I actually got along very well with this team of people. But those are outs. You have to give yourself an out. So in your case, if yes, saying yes is a problem, then don't take the action of making a commitment either way. Just give yourself an out to say, let me think about it. This way, you're not saying yes, you're not saying no, you're giving yourself time to consider. So sometimes when I talk about strategic inaction, it's not supposed to be a strategy you go to Harvard Business School to learn. It's about giving yourself an out so that you can reconsider the action you were about to take. You might still take the same action, but you're coming from a different place of commitment. Jenny, I want to think about that for just a second. But now is a really good time to remind everyone that her money is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. And I hope that you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a brand new show called Everyday Wealth presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in and explore how your financial decisions can shape your life and why wealth is about more than just money. Experienced wealth planners and financial professionals will join us to talk about tax-efficient investing, planning for the next generation, retirement, and so much more because it's your money and you have to make the most of it. New episodes premiere each weekend and are available on major podcast platforms. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more and subscribe. I'm talking with Ginny Appal, author of In Action. So Ginny, in the book, you write, the more ambitious and goal-oriented we are, the more we chase action to achieve desired outcomes leading to fatigue, burnout, and mistakes. I get the mistakes part, but the fatigue part and the burnout part, that struck me. How exactly is this drive to action burning us out? Action is an investment from your side of time, resources, energy, right? You're doing something. 
psychologically, you should tell me if you find this to be true, but we tend to associate outcome with something I did. Yeah. I tend to associate outcome. Well, there are two situations, right? There are the situations I can control, and there are the situations I can't control. And in the situations that I can control, yeah, then I tend to associate outcome with something that I did. But in the stock market, as we've been talking about, whether I buy or sell or hold or call my financial advisor has absolutely no correlation with what happens in the markets. Right. So we tend to correlate action with outcomes, and I'm going to posit that we actually control outcome in most cases in business and stock market investment far less than we realize. We like to believe we do. And the belief that I am the one who can control the outcome with my action makes us take more action than is necessary. Think of the people who tend to work long hours or who chase the same ambition over and over again. Stock market is a good example. The tendency and the almost intrinsic need to buy and sell because it gives you the feeling that you're doing something about it. So I point to research in the book that because we can see action is tangible, we see outcomes which are tangible, we correlate the two. Whereas those I interviewed who are in positions of leadership and success in different professions, they have figured out a way to insert a healthy dose of thoughtful pause. So I'm not dismissing the role of action. What I'm saying is bring in more thoughtful pauses. There's a story in the book, a CEO of a major global medical imaging firm who was told that there had been a horrible tragedy, a death of a child on a machine that was made by the company. And that CEO didn't call an emergency staff meeting. They didn't lawyer up. They went on a walk for two hours. Is that what you're talking about? So that's an interesting story, Jean, because crisis for a CEO of a well-known, you know, publicly held company is the moment of action you would think. At least he should have a display of action. And this CEO, instead of playing defense and lawyering up, he went for a two-hour walk. And during that walk, he connected with his own principles of what would I do for the family of the patient who died? Healthcare companies talk all about, you know, being there for their patients. And he, during that two-hour walk, connected with his principles and decided instead of playing defense and lawyering up, he would fly to the scene of the event. He cooperated with the hospital. He got to know the parent of the single mother of the child. In the meantime, they found out that the child had died of some other reasons, nothing to do with his machine, and which means he's exonerated. But they, And again, what would a typical CEO do? I got to get out of here. I have a company to run, Right. <laughs> But he stayed on, developed a relationship, invited the mother to come speak to his employees, which she did, because now there is a relationship of trust. His team was so inspired hearing the mother's story that they deployed a whole bunch of quality improvement programs on their own. And the way the CEO described the story was so fascinating. I've known him for about 10 plus years. He said, if I had to spend the money If I had to take the action to improve quality, I would have spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. But his momentary inaction, strategic inaction, led to moments of inspired action. Everything that happened was an inspiration, not of forcing people to improve quality. And that's my takeaway from his story and many others. 
so I think it's fascinating. And what I think is so fascinating is we all know that eventually it takes action to drive results with our careers, with our money, right? Unless I take the action of deciding that I'm going to put money into my 401k with every paycheck, there is no money there to grow when the stock market decides that it's going to go up. Unless I take the action of going and talking to my boss and saying, I believe I'm underpaid, I've done X, Y, and Z for the company, here's my homework on how much I'd earn if I was somewhere else, I believe I deserve a 15% raise. We talk about those sorts of actions that we encourage our listeners to take all the time. So where does strategic inaction factor into those actions? That that was a terrible way to ask that question, Ginny, but you know what I mean. Like, eventually we do have to do something in many, many cases. How do we use this pause in order to make the action that we do eventually take better? What I talk about in the book is the content of the action. What is the action that you take and when do you take it? You brought up a great example of renegotiating something in your job, a salary, title, other benefits. You can have that renegotiation from a place of being frustrated, emotional, or having a sense of entitlement. Or you can take a pause to do your research, get your thoughts together, and make a compelling business case on why is this good for you to give me a raise. (laughs) You know, I recently coached a woman who's millennial mom, overwhelmed. She wanted to quit outright. And I don't care. This is toxic. I just want to get out of here and I'll figure out what I'll do. And I told her your act of quitting itself is from a place of stress and pressure. What if you just think about it? And you know what? Why don't you tell your leadership what you're thinking? What have you got to lose? You were going to leave anyway, but just be candid with them. They renegotiated her role. They gave her two weeks off. She decided to stay on. She left after six months. But in the meantime, she developed such a good relationship with her leadership because they knew what was coming. And she had an invitation to come back. She didn't burn her bridges. Had she quit outright in a you know huff, she would be burning her bridges with her company. What I'm talking about is not not taking action. It is the right action that actually serves your purpose rather than putting you in a hamster wheel of going round and round. When we think about not doing anything, when we think about inaction, even for a little while, there are a lot of terms that are associated with that. We talk about mind wandering. We talk about procrastination. We talk about laziness. I mean, all of those things are usually viewed as so negative. And this conversation has me wondering if they're really negative at all. I do address All of those, (laughs) these words have a negative stigma attached to them. Inaction is usually associated with inertia and fear. And I'm saying in the process, you know, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're underestimating the power of a thoughtful pause out of choice, not out of being frozen into fear. That's not what I'm talking about. Mind wandering is another of those we tend to associate it with a distracted mind right? It's like you're not paying attention, which means you're wasting time. (laughs) 
That is the spontaneous mind wandering that you can't control. But there is actually neuroscience research I talk about in the book that says when we are not engaged in activity and we are not meditating either, our mind, there are parts of the brain that fire up that are called the default mode network. And when that part of the brain is active, it is connecting the dots between information you've been gathering to come up with creative ideas that you couldn't have brute forced your way through, no matter how much you concentrate or how long you work. So there is neuroscience and those in the creative professions, they know this. When they're up against a problem, they walk away from it. They go to sleep. Your brain will figure out the solution overnight. For me, and I'm not somebody who ever remembers my dreams, this happens when I go for a run. When I go for a run, if I don't plug in, you know, if I just run without a book in my head or, or music in my ears or a friend to talk to, then I find I'm connecting the dots. That's a beautiful example. We have a tendency of when we have free time, we scroll through social media. When we are walking, we have music blasting in the ears. And we think it's good because the music can have a calming effect, the right kind of music. But nonetheless, you are interfering with your brain's ability to figure things out. If you're giving it something because sounds coming through your ears, words coming, even if you're binge watching something in the background, you think it's a show you've seen a hundred times, your senses are engaged. What's happening to you on the run is spontaneous still, like you're running. Imagine if you made that a strategy. I actually started scheduling half an hour of mind wandering in my calendar twice a week. It felt funny to do it at first, but it is part of my practice now to let my mind sort through the problem and figure out a solution. I love that. I'm going to try mind wandering in my calendar too. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) As we wrap this up, is there anything else that you'd like to share specifically for our listeners who are feeling a little antsy during these times and who hear themselves in this conversation and are, are fighting the urge to take action? I'll tell you what I'm doing because I also invest. (laughs) I am uh, reducing the amount of advice I take from others, reducing the amount of analysis reports, and reducing the number of times I check my account. (laughs) It's like reduce the normal activity in that context, in this case, stock market investments find something else to do. Sometimes inaction is about finding something else to do. Go for a walk. We're all going to go for a good long walk. Ginia Paul, the book is in action. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. But before she jumps in, let me remind everyone that her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't happen at one single point, but rather at many different stages of life. That's why BCU is here today for your tomorrow, with support available at every stage of your financial journey. You can learn more about eligibility at www.bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins us. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I loved that conversation so much. I have felt like I needed to be reined in with my desire for control during these past few years of the pandemic because I think during times when we feel like so much is out of our control, 
we try to grasp even more for the areas that we think we need to get a better handle on. So I needed this episode. Thank you. No, thank you. I think I needed it too. And I think as the markets have been so volatile, we all needed it because it's when the markets are so out of control that we tend to make really big investment mistakes, right? When the markets are cratering, which, you know, they haven't been cratering, but they have definitely, we've seen bigger swings on a day-to-day basis. It's when we think, oh my God, I have to get out of here. And we make the sort of mistakes that leave us sitting on the sidelines and not getting back in just as the markets run up again. It's such a great point. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I appreciated the conversation. And I got to say, like, sometimes you just talk to people and you feel like you are stealing their energy. There was that famous episode of Friends. I, You know, I have definitely watched too much Friends, and this is how I know. I've been going to the gym in the mornings and using the running app on my Peloton to run on the treadmill. And while I run on the treadmill, I watch whatever's on TV. So I was watching an episode of Friends while I was running with my Peloton app in my ears and the music in my ears and the cues in my ears, which meant Friends was on silent. And yet I knew every word, every single word. So I've definitely watched that show too many times. But it reminds me of the one where they were arguing about you're stealing my wind right? Men steal our wind, they're wind stealers. I don't know if you if you ever saw that, but sometimes I feel like we steal each other's energy. We are with somebody and all of a sudden their energy level becomes our energy level. And I felt Ginny was so calm, right? Like I just feel a little more zen after having that conversation. Yeah, I love that. I actually have to say, I think our team is pretty calm as a whole. It's one <laughs> Except of the things for me when I like well, lose it. This is one of the things I love about her money. And I actually think you are an amazing manager and hirer because I think you, whether consciously or not, I think you've hired some chilled out people. Yeah. I don't know if it was consciously or not. I definitely try to hire people that I think will be... I mean, low maintenance is the wrong word because everybody needs mentorship and everybody needs training, but where they aren't going to create unnecessary distractions or diversions that are not meaningful to what we have going on day to day not meaningful in the path of the things that we're trying to get done. Because as a small company, as a startup, we are always trying to get a lot of things done. Yeah, that's such a good point. Everybody's got to be able to keep it in their lane. For sure. I know today you pulled one mailbag question because it's a big one with a lot of pieces. So let's dive into it. Yeah, it's just one. I think a lot of people will probably have similar questions. So so we can just spend some time on this one. Okay. And I just reserve the right to stop you as you're going through it so that I don't forget things as we go along. Absolutely. Our listener writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. My husband and I are gearing up to do our wills and POA documents, and I have questions. POA, by the way, power of attorney. Amazing. And I have questions. This is my second marriage, and I have one 13-year-old son from my first marriage. My ex is a wonderful father, but not someone I feel totally comfortable managing my son's money for him if I were to pass away. I'm 37. 
I've had a term life insurance policy to benefit my son since he was an infant for $400,000. It will continue until he's 25 years old and the monthly premium is $26. My husband is resistant to adding more life insurance because we're stretched to meet our other financial goals. Here's a picture of our finances. Our current annual income is about $150,000. Mine is ninety, dollars and my husband's is sixty. dollars our current primary goal is to pay off student loans. I have about 60000 remaining, and he has 9000 remaining. We also have a car loan of 20000 We have a one-month emergency fund and a 30-year $350,000 mortgage that's a VA loan with a fixed interest rate just over 2.5%. I have about $50,000 saved for retirement so far in a 401k, rollover IRA, and Roth IRA combo. My husband has about $30,000 in a 401k and Roth IRA. We are both saving about 10% of our incomes toward retirement. My husband's dream is to buy apartments and manage them full-time. I'd like to have a $50,000 down payment before we start looking. With all this said, I have a few questions. Number one, should I set up a trust for my son in case of my death? The life insurance and a small 529 balance around $3,000 is all I have for it at the moment, but maybe my Roth IRA around $5,000 could be added to that. This seems to be the best way to designate my sister to manage my son's money instead of his father. Is that correct? Let's just pause there. Yes, I think you probably do want to set up a simple trust for your son in case of your death. It can be what's called an insurance trust, where the proceeds of the insurance actually go straight into the trust rather than going to your son directly. And I'd suggest this even if your goal wasn't to put your sister in charge rather than his father. I'd suggest it because he's going to be, if anything were to happen to you, and hopefully it just doesn't, but if anything were to happen to you, he would be incredibly young and somebody should be managing that money for him or with him. So I think a simple trust is a very good idea and you can talk to an estate planning attorney for that. Amazing. Her second question is, I currently pay about 400 a month in child support. Would a trust be the best way to set up a schedule to continue those payments? Ideally, I think some of the life insurance money should be used to pay child support until the time when it would end if I were still alive at high school graduation. Plus, it would be nice if that could help fund visitation, travel, like plane tickets for him to see my parents and sister as they live a few states away. Okay, pause one more time. Again, yes, you can do all of this with the trust. The trust and your sister as trustee should be instructed to use some of the money to continue those payments. In terms of his support, the support of your child, if something were to happen to you, as a divorced parent, I think what likely happens is that the whole thing gets shaken up right? Your child support obligations would cease, but your ex would need additional funds to continue to support your son, to pay for college, and all of those sorts of things. So having a conversation with your sister about what your wishes are, as much as with your attorney about what you want put in writing, is going to be the important thing here. Fantastic. Her third question is about life insurance. She says, I'd like to shop for $1 million coverage for my husband and $1.5 million for me. Do these numbers seem reasonable? Any tips for convincing my husband? We're both in good health. 
The numbers seem fairly reasonable. I mean, the general life insurance rule of thumb is that you want to replace about 10 times your income plus any big expenditures. So 10 times your income plus the mortgage plus college, that gets you to about one and a half million. 10 times his income plus the mortgage gets your husband to about a million. So I think those numbers are very much in line. I think the way to convince your husband is to basically just say to him, think about what happens to me if anything were to happen to you. I would have to move. I would not be able to continue to pay this mortgage because when you look at this mortgage with my student loans, I would really be up a creek. I would be under tremendous stress. Ask him if he can understand that that would be an incredibly difficult situation to put you in. Ask him why he is so opposed to life insurance in order to replace his income. And if he pushes back, because he has no quote-unquote dependence, because you are essentially financially independent, I might look at reducing the amount that you buy for him just to maybe cover the mortgage and give you a little bit of a cushion. But I would go ahead and try to have that conversation when you're both in a in a good spot, when you're both calm. If you have a financial advisor, bringing that financial advisor into this conversation or even an attorney that you both trust, an estate planning attorney as you're drawing up these other documents is a really good thing for both of you to do. And as far as if he does not go along, you should do it anyway. And if you can't afford a million and a half off the bat, that's okay. Buy what you can afford, do it with term insurance, and add to it as your salary grows. Thank you so much, Jean. And number four, she writes... Are there any other special considerations we should bring to our estate planning lawyer, given our mini blended family? I've heard to expect this to cost around $1,000. Does the trust consideration increase that budget significantly? So the special considerations question, I think, is an interesting one. You are going to need to have your own will, and your husband is going to need to have his own will. And it's pretty clear what you want, but not at all clear what he would want to happen if something were to happen to him. I mean, maybe everything would just flow to you and that would be plain and simple and easy, but maybe not. Maybe he has charities that he'd want to take care of or other members of his family. Any sort of complicating factors are the kind of thing that you'll just want to bring to the attention of the attorney. And you're right on the price in terms of a basic estate planning package. You can typically get one for around $1,000, a little more, and that would include wills and powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, and living wills that would tell a doctor or a hospital whether or not you want life support. But trusts will increase the cost of that. I think these are fairly simple trusts, so I might shop around a little bit. There is absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. Just explain that you are looking for a basic estate planning package, including at least one, probably no more, life insurance trusts. 
and see what happens with the quotes that you get and go from there. I love that, Jean. And it's my understanding that the costs for these things also vary greatly from state to state because I know it was a lot cheaper in Alabama than it was in New York. It does. Unfortunately, you kind of have to work on this where you live because the laws do vary state to state. I've talked a little bit in the past about how since moving to Pennsylvania, we've just redone our documents. And part of that was because of new residency. Interesting. All right. Her fifth and final question is, do you think waiting to start saving for the real estate business dream, at least until we finish paying off our student loans, is the most prudent path? Thank you so much. Sure. And I love that you have this dream and that it's something that he wants to work on. That's fantastic. I wouldn't wait. I would look for a real estate investment club in your area and have him start going to meetings or start going to meetings together. This buying of apartments and managing them is a pretty complicated process. And there are a lot of different ways that people buy into multifamily units. Sometimes you can get involved without having a lot of money to put down by being the person who does the legwork and sources the properties for other people. And then you can get a part of that deal. And that may be a way for your husband to get involved before having a large down payment to to put into it. I agree with you that paying off the student loans should be a goal. You didn't give me a ton of detail about what they are. And so I would hope that if they're private loans, you've taken the opportunity while interest rates are really low to refinance and lower your interest rates as much as possible. If you haven't done that, it is not too late at all. I would get on that right away. And I wouldn't let this real estate dream get in the way of continuing to put the 10% into your retirement. I think that has to stay front of mind at all times. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jean, for the insight. Sure. And can I just say, I love our listeners. I mean, you know, that you are willing to lay all of this out there for us in such detail is fantastic. And it gives me the ability to really think through all the issues as I try my very best to answer your questions. So thank you so much for laying it all out for us like that. Yes, I love to see the longer questions come in. It makes me so happy because I know we can really dive in. Exactly. And in today's Thrive, how to host a Galentine's Day party on a budget. If you're flying solo this Valentine's Day, first of all, amazing. Don't listen to the marketing hype that you need to find a date before February 14th. You can celebrate yourself and all the love in your life with the help of your amazing girlfriends. Best of all, a Valentine's Day celebration does not have to be expensive to be memorable. At hermoney.com this week, we've got a few ideas for planning a Valentine's Day you won't forget while sticking to your budget. First, try a themed tea party. Alcohol gets expensive and it gets expensive fast. And if you're trying to cut down on your intake anyway, 
A tea party can be a perfect solution. You can offer up scrumptious bites and pastries, all of which are cheap to make or even to buy. There are cucumber sandwiches and mini pettifors and muffins and so much more. Don't forget the chocolate, please. To keep costs down, you can ask each attendee to bring something of their own. And don't forget the English dress-up for high tea, so don't be afraid to pull out the fancy hats and even the fascinators. Number two, consider a paint and sip approach. We did this for a big birthday for my friend Diane. Oh my God, so much fun. Exercising your creative side is a powerful way to explore how you're feeling and what matters the most to you. Plus, it's also a fun and inexpensive way to create a lasting memory with your girlfriends. You can pay for a class at a paint and sip studio that offers these experiences from anywhere from about $20 to $40 a person or grab your own canvases, some inexpensive paint, throw down some newspapers and do it yourself right from the comfort of your living room. And speaking of your living room, you may also wanna consider having a spa retreat at home. Spa days, yes, they are pricey, but maybe this year you choose someone's home and then spend the weekend pampering, wine tasting, creating vision boards, and tapping into your inner self. The goal is to use the time to unwind, disconnect, and boost one another's confidence. From painting nails to discussing the goals you met in the last year, it's a Galentine's Day experience that celebrates everything. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Ginia Paul for sharing her stories with us today. I am feeling much calmer and am eager to see if I can try to embrace inaction a little bit more often. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>